everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we speak with Bear County District Attorney Joe Gonzalez. Bear County is the home of San Antonio, Texas. Joe Gonzalez was elected in 2018 and took office in January of 2019 on a pledge to reform the office, restore public confidence, and make the office more accountable to the voters. Welcome to our show, Joe. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So what was wrong in Texas, and how well do you think you've accomplished uh, what you set out to do? Well, let me start with what was wrong. Uh, And by the way, uh, just so that the viewers are um, aware, for county down here, while it it phonetically sounds like Bexard, it's actually pronounced uh, bear, like the animal. So it's Bear County, uh, which is a... And the county seat is, is down here in San Antonio. Um, but uh, I had been a lawyer for 30 years. Uh, and so I started my career as a, as a young prosecutor. Uh, and back at the beginning of my career, I, I believe that, that my, my duty was to, uh, to be tough on crime, to throw the book at everyone that I came across. Uh, it's taking me... Um, 30 years to learn that uh, that's not that's not the case, that prosecutors shouldn't always just think in terms of the toughest sentences. Uh, and, and part of my evolution was because I spent the majority of my career as a defense lawyer after spending eight years as a prosecutor working under three different administrations, um, including Harris County, which at the time in the mid-90s was the uh, death penalty capital of the country. Uh, I began to see that that um, crime and punishment, like life, is is, uh, is is not all black and white, right? There's a lot of gray, and so that was part of my philosophy and my evolution uh, as I as I matured as an attorney. Uh, and practicing law in Bear County, what I saw is historically the elected DA uh, only only had one mindset, which is uh, yeah, we're going to be as tough as we can on crime. We're not going to take any consideration uh, in, in terms of, uh, or, or we're not going to take into consideration um, a person's uh, motivation for committing a crime, a person's background, for example, if it's a drug case, uh, the fact that this person may be addicted, if the person is charged with prostitution, maybe he or she is doing this uh, in order to feed their addiction. And, and 
and so I, I began to see that, that there was a lot of inequity in terms of how prosecutors uh, attempted resolve, to resolve cases, that there was a lot of uh, unfairness, especially when it came to people of color, because especially down here in South Texas, people of color, and especially Hispanics, uh, don't uh, tend to have the higher-end jobs and don't tend to uh, uh, be able to afford the best lawyers in town. And so a lot of times they have to rely on uh, public defenders and court-appointed lawyers that uh, are cutting their teeth uh, at the beginning of their careers and maybe don't get them the best results that uh, that they should. And so, again, I started to see a lot of, uh, of unfairness in terms of the way the DA's office uh, dealt with uh, members of the defense bar. And then I thought to myself, that's not right. It, it shouldn't be uh, a different from uh, for defendant A to defendant B, depending on how good his lawyer is. Uh, and so one of the things I saw uh, was the connection with that. And, and um, um, after years of, of being involved in, in the system down here, uh, and after uh, spending the majority of my career, as I say, as a criminal defense lawyer, I made the decision uh, to to give it a shot. And so in um, in 2018, I uh, I ran, or actually I, I announced in 2017, uh, and was elected in 2018, and beat a very popular incumbent down here. And, and uh, part of the uh, the message was that he was uh, uh, tough on on just about everybody that his prosecutors uh, encountered. There were other issues um, uh, that caused me to decide to run, but uh, but one of the biggest reasons is because I felt like I could do a better job. And and by the way, at about the same time, I began um, being aware of a movement across the country of a group of of lawyers and, and prosecutors that were trying to bring criminal justice reform to the system. And I thought, you know what, that's a great idea. And I started hearing about uh, prosecutors like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and others across the country. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's, that's the way it should be. Even people that, that have control over the prison system, even people that have um, uh, some say in, in reducing mass incarceration, uh, that are in the DA's office ought to be able to to think that way. And so that was part of my platform when I ran in 2018, that I was going to bring criminal justice reform to down here to Bear County. And I'm happy to say that, that we're doing that now, that we're making some significant uh, strides in the way that we run this office. Uh, I say all the time it's a big ship. It's going to take a while to turn it around. But but I, I do think we've, we've had some some huge successes in just the uh, 15 months or so that I had been in office. And uh, what would you consider to be your major accomplishments so far? By far, the, the accomplishment that I'm most proud of is a program that we uh, call Fight and Release. Uh, Fight spells C-I-T-E and Release. Basically, uh, it's a system whereby an officer on the street has the discretion to decide to issue a citation to an individual instead of uh, arresting them and taking them to jail. 
And so uh, by statute here in Texas, uh, it only applies to uh, certain enumerated offenses, for example, misdemeanor marijuana cases uh, and, and theft cases. And, um, and so we have been able to use that program with a huge amount of success, partly because we've gotten some buy-in from law enforcement. But here, here has been the result. Just after uh, nine, actually not even nine months, just after about eight months of being in operation, uh, there have been some 1,900 people that have avoided being arrested and instead have been issued citations. Uh, and that's huge because that means those, those uh, 1,900 people or so uh, didn't have to risk uh, being arrested, didn't have to uh, potentially lose their jobs. Uh, being taken from their families, and especially those that could not afford a bond, instead of sitting in jail, languishing, waiting to go to court, they were able to go back home. Uh, and so uh, that uh, has been a huge success. Uh, and so we're, we are working with those individuals. What, what basically the program calls for is if an officer issues a citation um, and we ask the individual to come to uh, our our uh, reentry center, which is basically a one-stop shop uh, where we have people screen the individual. For example, if they have a drug issue that they would like some help with, we can provide them counseling. If it's a, a theft case, maybe some uh, shoplifting uh, uh, program. Uh, and so there are different areas. We, we also provide some job counseling. And so those people will, will participate in that. Uh, then the case uh, will will be dismissed and will never be filed in court. And so the huge benefit to that is not only does that person avoid an arrest record, but also avoids a potential conviction, which, as you know, can have huge consequences uh, down the road. So, so that's been uh, one of our, our hugest uh, or most um, successful uh, endeavors. And I will, I will say that uh, at the beginning, I did get push, pushback. Uh, in the community, especially from the more conservative groups, uh, who I think their mentality is, wait a minute, your job is to prosecute people. Your job is to throw them in jail. Well, I think more than that. I see my obligation is not just uh, to have someone arrested, but review the case and to find out what the most reasonable outcome should be. And so to those people, we've been able to say, look, this program uh, is beneficial beneficial not only in terms of the the accused the person that's being arrested uh, versus being released but also to the taxpayer because number one it puts the officer back out on the street as soon as possible um, so we're saving taxpayer dollars by not making that officer sit uh, at the booking station while the prisoner is processed and in addition to that in in those um eight or nine months, we've already saved our county down here over a million dollars. Uh, so that's been a huge benefit that, uh, again, the more conservative um, segment of our community sees as a benefit. So so that's the, the one, I mean, there are a lot of successes that I can point to, but I, I, I'm most proud of that because, again, um, it, it, affects, it has affected so many people in just such a short period of time. How have your priorities changed under COVID? One of the ways that uh, it has changed, it, it, ha it has um, 
required us to take a look at how we do business. For example, because of COVID-19, we have not been able to go to court and um, participate in regular court dockets uh, because we have uh, orders in the county and with the city to avoid contact with people. Um, we have had to do it remotely. So we've, we've had to learn to use, for example, uh, the Zoom uh, technology. So we've had some remote uh, court hearings already in the last uh, month or so. We have, uh, we have 10 felony courts. They're called criminal district courts down here. And uh, all but one um, have ceased operation. And that one court that is pretty much a presiding court uh, where we have business to, to handle will either have to go to court where everyone um, wears a mask and make sure that, that they maintain social distancing, that is, they can't be within six feet of each other, or we've used we've gone to the remote access where we've been able to do it virtually. So that's one way that uh, we've had to uh, change the way we do business. And, and, and I say recently that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And because of what we've had to go through, we've now been able to streamline some of our process. And, and I hope that when this is all over with, we continue to use uh, this, technology to be able to conduct uh, hearings uh, virtually. Another way that we've uh, uh, changed the way we operate is to look at the jail population. Uh, I, uh, I'm fortunate that I'm able to work very well with the sheriff in this county, who not only is responsible for the law enforcement of the entire county, but also is the administrator of the jail. He and I are, tech, are constantly in communication, uh, and we have been able to work together to reduce the jail population from, from typically what is around 3,900 to 4,000 at any one time down to about 3,000. So we've successful, successfully reduced that, uh, it down to less by reducing or eliminating eight or, eight or 900 people that would have typically been sitting in jail. Because of this, um, we've been able to re reduce the incarceration level at the local jail. So that's another positive step that has grown out of this COVID-19 um, experience. But it's not only the sheriff. Other, other partners as well, uh, the, the clerk's office down here, uh, we're again fortunate that we have a very cooperative uh, commissioner's court that's the governing body that makes the decisions in terms of the funding and and how much uh, to allot for uh, employees and and supplies and materials. Everyone seems to be working uh, very well together to uh, to to get through this pandemic. So it, it by and large has been a good uh, good experience working together. How far have you been willing to go on issues like zero bail and jail releases? Well, uh, in terms of, of myself and my office, every, ever since I took office back January 1st of, of 2019, uh, I instructed my prosecutors at the magistrate level. That's the level where uh, someone is brought uh, in from the street and is brought to a magistrate judge uh, and booked. Uh, and taken before a, a judge. And we have a 24-hour magistration system. 
because we're one of the major uh, urban areas in Texas. Not all jurisdictions in Texas have 24-hour magistration, but we do. We have prosecutors working 24-7. I have instructed those prosecutors to operate under a presumption of release, uh, especially for nonviolent offenses that most uh, misdemeanors uh, and even our fourth-degree drug uh, felony cases. Uh, If an individual doesn't have an aggravated uh, criminal history, if there's no uh, history of of violence, if they're not a danger to the community, then our instruction to, when I say our, my entire administration, uh, our instruction to the prosecutors is to to, uh, recommend a a what's called a PR bond, a personal recognizance bond. In some jurisdictions, they're called uh, OR bonds or own recognizance, so that the person basically is released on just the, the promise to appear uh, in court and not had to make uh, make bail, not had to pay a cash bail, because that is one of those issues that uh, has been uh, constant uh, during my administration. Is I've seen. Other other offices throughout Texas handle it differently, um, and um, the, I have always been uh, uh, in favor of some sort of um, uh, ref- reform in terms of, of cash bail because, again, I, I recognized early in my career that uh, that the, the, the segment of society that's affected the most uh, is the poor because typically they don't have. Uh, the ability to bond out. For example, on a typical um, misdemeanor uh, case, a judge may set a bond at $5,000. The going rate is 10% and we're higher bondsmen. Well, that's 500 bucks. $500 may not be a lot to you and I uh, because we have a regular paycheck and, and we could probably afford that. But to the person that's trying to make ends meet, uh, to the person that has a hand-to-mouth existence, Five hundred dollars is a lot of money. It may be the difference between them paying their rent uh, and having their family kicked out the door, or not. And so, a lot of times, those people sit in jail until their court date, which could be months in the future. And so, that's one of the things that we have done in our office. And and by the way, that's that's how we can affect uh, mass incarceration is at the front end, uh, and that usually will impact uh, the people sitting at the at the county jail. Uh, where we're able to recommend low bonds or or no no bonds where they don't have to or rather they, no cash bonds. Um, but again, all they are uh, is recommendations. Ultimately, it's up to the judge to decide whether or not to grant them. Uh, for the most part, the judges uh, have been willing to uh, to hear us out and consider our recommendations for lower lower uh, level bonds. There's, there's a whole discussion about what the governor has done recently to try and, and strip the judges of their authority. Uh, I'm one of four prosecutors that went on record uh, and filed an amicus brief um, in support of the judge's authority to, to continue to grant PR bonds. Have you been able to, during the COVID crisis, reduce the jail population through releases and and what category of people are being released at this point well as i said we have reduced the population by about 900 people and the category of people that are being released are those uh, non-violent offenders that are charged with a low-level offense uh, that's typically your drug uh, possession cases 
Um, for example, the, the misdemeanor marijuana cases that cannot be handled through site release or the low-level uh, controlled substance uh, like cocaine, for example, uh, theft cases, uh, general property crimes, um, things of that nature. Those are the kinds of cases that that we're able to 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 uh, uh, recommend bonds on. Other types of cases are where people are are being held on probation violations. We're working to see if we can uh, uh, reach agreement uh, to have those people released pending the court hearings, and we've had some success with that. Uh, the sheriff also has been exercising his discretion and having people released early uh, by getting uh, good time credits. So that's another uh, group of people that have been released. Uh, so so we have we have had um, some success uh, during this period in releasing those people because the, because the justification is to try and, and flatten the curve, to try and reduce the amount of people that are exposed to COVID-19. Because I will tell you that there have been uh, cases at our jail, jail where some of the inmates have tested positive. Uh, and so even some of the deputies, even some of the, uh, the guards that, um, that are responsible for, for supervising these inmates have, um, have tested positive. And so that's a concern to us all. And so that's why, uh, we've been able to, um, successfully accomplish this. And this is, uh, we've had to, uh, go on pretty much a, a campaign to explain to the public why we're doing this. And I think by large, the public understands that we're not just going to open the, the jailhouse doors and release uh, violent criminals. We're not going to, we're not going to uh, create a, a situation of lawlessness. We're, we're going to be very careful with who we consider uh, reducing, uh, but at the same time with the idea that we want to, we want to flatten the curve at, at the jail. So what I'm starting to see is an interesting kind of tug of war um, where the reform minded people are pushing to release people. And now I'm starting to see a little bit of a pushback. Oh, you know, you'll see a story, you know, so-and-so was released and then he reoffended 15 minutes later or some absurd thing like that. Um, so, so from your perspective, how do you address issues like that? Because you know, if you're going to release, let's say, I think you said 900 people have been released or 19 or something, uh, 1900, um, you know, a certain amount of those people are going to go out and commit another crime. Uh, how do you respond to people that push back and say, well, you just released this person and now they committed this crime. Right. And the, and the number is 900. Uh, and so, sorry about sure, that. But that's that's okay. No worries. No worries. Uh, and and that that certainly uh, uh, has been the criticism uh, from some segments in the community, especially the most conservative uh, voices out there. But my response to that is that stories that you hear about the occasional person that was released and committed another crime, uh, that may happen anyway if that person is able to get out of jail on a cash bond. All we're doing is is uh, looking at people that that are poor are too poor to bond out because they don't have the money to bond out. By and large, the majority of those people are not reoffending. They are not uh, committing crimes while they're waiting for their day in court because they realize uh, that that has consequences. That that might jeopardize 
uh, their ability to get a good good resolution. So the the stories that you hear about those people that are are reoffending, I think, um, first of all, nobody can predict um, when that's going to happen. It would be ludicrous to to think that a a judge or a prosecutor has a, a crystal ball and can determine every time when they're recommending uh, a plea bargain that that person is going to go out and reoffend. Uh, all we can do is the best we with the, the information that we have in front of us. And I think the, the large majority of cases have have been successful. So I, I think it's just um, it it it's pushback from the other side. It's 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 designed to get a reaction um, to say, look, this is this is the, this is what happens when you let those liberal judges and those liberal prosecutors uh, uh, do this. Again, my explanation is the the large, there's still more of a benefit um, because the large majority of those people that take advantage of what we're doing are doing the right thing and and they're they're not really offended. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people forget that just because you release them at, at uh, now doesn't mean they weren't going to be released in two or three months anyway. So it's not like you're taking somebody that was going to be in prison for the rest of their life and uh, was never going to offend again. Um, but, you know, from, from your perspective, you know, will these release programs be a success and what does success look like for you? Well, I think that we can continue to work to look at those kinds of cases where we can continue to to recommend um, the uh, the low bonds uh, as long as as we don't believe that they're a danger to the community. Uh, we're going to continue to do that uh, long after uh, COVID nineteen nineteen is over with uh, here in in San Antonio. Uh, but there are other things that I'm going to continue to do uh, to push to push forward. I'm going to continue to uh, push uh, our criminal justice reform um, platform. Uh, we're doing things down here uh, to to try and and and, uh, and and push the ball downfield. For example, the uh, the diversionary programs. We've always always had some kind of diversion program in in this county but under my administration it's a new and improved process because or before a a person in order to avoid a conviction he might have been offered uh what's called pre-trial diversion but that process was pretty lengthy you, you had to uh submit an application online uh and uh, most people uh, you know may not either own a computer or or know how to operate it uh, there was a filing fee uh, uh, associated with that. Then there was, uh, you had to go get two letters of recommendation. Uh, then you had to wait until the prosecutor uh, decided to grant this application for pretrial diversion. We've eliminated all of that. Uh, what we've done is our, our version is called conditional dismissal. When you come to court and we think that you are a good candidate for pretrial diversion, uh, we're going to dismiss the case up front and give you an opportunity to do what we're asking you to do, like community service or take a drug treatment program or um, um, some other program that we think addresses the issue. And if you successfully complete it, uh, then the case goes away. It stays dismissed. 
but it doesn't clog the docket. Uh, and so the judges are happy with that because it removes the case from their docket. And, and, a, and an offender doesn't have to wait six months to a year before uh, being released from that obligation to come to court. So, I mean, it's a win-win situation as long as everybody is doing what they're supposed to. So that's uh, that's that's one of those um, a, a, um, programs that we're going to continue to move forward on, and we're going to continue to to utilize. Uh, I say all the time that that I understand and accept my responsibility to try and keep our community safe, and and we're doing that. But we have limited resources, and I'm I have to make the decision about how and where to best use those resources, and so. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the violent offenders, the people that are accused of murder, sexual assault, uh, aggravated robbery, uh, those kinds of cases that keep us uh, all up at night. Uh, and not so much on the low-level nonviolent offender, the low-level drug cases. Uh, and, and so that's, that's how we're doing. That's how I think I'm different than, than my predecessors. Uh, again, with them, it was all or nothing. With them, it was throw the book at everybody. We're, we're trying to be smart on crime. We're trying to um, to be as, as fair as we can, as reasonable with the resources that we have uh, in our office. So I want to shift gears a little bit because, um, you know, it feels like a long time ago now, uh, but it really wasn't. Uh, the Rodney Reed case, um, and you asked the governor to halt his execution. I, I wanted to kind of hear what your thinking was and why you decided to uh, intervene in that one. Well, you know, again, this is part of my evolution as a lawyer, especially when it comes to uh, the death penalty. Uh, it's final, and and uh, you can't bring the person back, and, and if you made a mistake, what do you do then? You, you have to be absolutely sure that what you're doing is the right thing, and uh, there are all those other arguments um, against the death penalty, that it doesn't uh, truly create a deterrent, that it's more expensive to execute someone than to house them for the rest of, of their life. But, but one of the reasons that I have made the decision to overturn some of those cases where my predecessor had uh, given notice that he was going to take the death penalty is that we now have in Texas true life without parole. And so if your concern is that this person that commits multiple murders or a really gruesome crime is going to be out in the public at some point in his life, but as a result of a plea bargain, he takes his last breath in prison and will never be out again in the general public, why do we need to execute that person? And so uh, that's a lot of the reasons that I uh, have uh, developed this philosophy of only doing it with the worst of the worst. Rodney Reed was a, a case where I think there's some serious doubt about whether this defendant actually committed the crime. This is one where there was newly discovered evidence about whether or not uh, the DNA was, um, was uh, righteous, whether or not it was um, accurate. Uh, there, there are other issues, for example, um, there was another individual that may have committed the crime. Um, and uh, there, there, this whole case, in my mind, had some issues and, and had problems. And my, uh, my position with that is if, if there is truly some issue with regard to 
this man's actual guilt and he's actually innocent, what's the harm in waiting? What's the harm in, in delaying his execution and having fresh eyes look at this case to see whether or not uh, the the evidence was uh, was sound? And so, uh, so that's why I took that position. Uh, unfortunately, I think only one other prosecutor in in Texas stepped up and uh, and took that same position and sent a letter to the governor. Um, I'm disappointed because there there were a lot of other prosecutors that I think could have and should have stepped forward and didn't. Um, and I understand why they might not. It's not politi- politically politically, um, um, you know, attractive to do that. Right? Again, remember, as elected DA, our job is is to some people see it as, as as to prosecute crimes. My my view of what my job is is to seek justice, and it's every prosecutor's responsibility to make sure you do that. And if the evidence is tainted, if the the witnesses are not credible, then it's time to look at that case. And and, I, and my from what I know about Rodney Reed, that's what this was about. That there was something wrong with the way this man was prosecuted. There was something wrong with the, with the conviction, and and somebody needed to take a uh, a second look. Uh, unfortunately, I understand that um, uh, that um, the cries went unanswered. I understand that. Um, that he's still facing an execution date. Um, and so that's, that's unfortunate. Again, I wish more of my brother had stepped forward, but, um, but, but I, for one, uh, did what I felt like I needed to do. And then how does your office approach wrongful convictions or potential wrongful convictions in general? Well, we have a conviction integrity unit and we have, um, three attorneys, and a in uh, a paralegal, uh, and so it's one of the responsibilities is to review cases where uh, where there's an issue about whether or not the uh, the conviction was uh, was sound, uh, whether or not it was a, a correct conviction, and uh, and so that's uh, that's part of the responsibility, uh, and and uh, we I'm instructed them to look at these cases for and I. Uh, of uh, exoneration. If there's any basis to believe that there was something um, um, improper in the way the evidence was presented, uh, if someone uh, tampered with the evidence, if the DNA or any other uh, type of scientific or physical evidence uh, was unreliable, then we need to look at that. Uh, I'll tell you that our office has been responsible for the exoneration of about 14 defendants. I know just recently there was uh, a case that I joined uh, the defense bar where um, a a um, defendant was sent to prison on a charge of uh, aggravated sexual assault of his own child, his own uh, son. Um, and after he did, I think about eight of a ten, eight of a ten year sentence, uh, the uh, the now adult son. Uh, came forward and said, my father never did this to me. I don't know why my mother said this. Uh, and so I'm here to say it never happened. Well, uh, this, they, uh, that defendant, although he did the majority of the time, uh, filed a writ uh, because he wanted to have his name cleared. And so uh, it came to my attention. It was filed. Uh, it was brought 
uh, to our office. We reviewed it and I agreed that uh, that this man should be exonerated. So that's an example of where we review a case, and if we believe that um, that the testimony uh, was tainted, was not credible, was um, or there was some other problem with the, with the way the case is presented, I certainly have no problem in in joining and, and having those people exonerated. And so, we, and we've done that, as I as I mentioned. Well, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to uh, thank you for coming on our show and talking about what's going on in Bear County, Texas. You're very welcome. Thank you, uh, David, for inviting me. Um, and, uh, and I was glad to share uh, with you all what we're doing down here in Bear County. Thank you. That was Joe Gonzalez. He's the DA in Bear County, Texas, which is where San Antonio is. And he's been in office for just over a year. And of course, the entire world, like uh, everywhere else, has shifted and changed. But uh, it's been great to hear exactly what they're doing and all the reforms that they're putting into place. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.